If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at some of the verses from last week's section on the, the wise men and Herod so that it will help us understand what we're looking at today, which is Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23. So friends, listen. This is the word of God. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and they came to the house and worshipped him. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken of by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God. So Matthew presents Jesus as this king who is coming. Jesus is the king who is coming. And it's been such incredible news, right? What we've seen so far, that Jesus comes and brings a new beginning, a fresh start. We saw that in chapter 1. We saw that Jesus is the reality of God with us. That God has bridged the gap between heaven and earth. That if you feel far from God, if you feel isolated from Him, Jesus has come and drawn near. 
and he's come to save his people from their sins. This is incredible news. And last week we saw that when the wise men came, we saw that Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, but he's the savior of the whole world. Everyone is invited. Everyone is offered the blessings of Jesus. And so everything in Matthew's story is going great. This is good news and it's being received until Herod. Until Herod. It was hinted at in verses 1 to 12, but then we see it come in to full bloom or we see it, we see that with Herod, the, the peace on earth, the mercy mild comes against the backdrop of incredible opposition. Incredible opposition. And as we see the opposition of Herod to Jesus, we're going to see why people oppose Jesus and why they oppose people who follow Jesus. That's what we're going to see today. You want to ask yourself the question, why does everybody say that they value Jesus as a good teacher, but as nothing more? If you're following Jesus, why do you feel like other people sometimes don't respect your faith? Why do you feel uncomfortable at times sharing what you believe about Jesus with others? The answer is opposition. It's because opposition exists. And this passage shows us why people are opposed to Jesus and how God protects his people in the midst of opposition. That's what we're going to see today. So our first point, if you want to write something down, is that opposition is real. Opposition is real. And we see opposition personified with Herod. Herod was, he was called Herod the Great. He was reigning over Israel at the time that Jesus was born. Now, if you remember, I don't know if you remember, but Herod himself was not Jewish. Okay, he was actually a descendant of Esau. So he was an Edomite. Um, And in 40 BC, Herod was declared to be king of the Jews by Octavian and the Roman Senate. They installed him as a puppet king. Now, he married a Jewish woman to make himself more acceptable to the Jewish people. Um, And in some ways, Herod was a good king. In some ways. Um, There were times where Herod did things seemingly out of a a, a care for his people. Um, There were times in economic hardship when Herod actually gave back some tax money that he had collected. There, were, there was another time um, during the Great Famine in 25 BC. There was a huge famine, and Herod had some of the gold objects in the palace melted down, and he bought food for the poor. So Herod built racetracks and theaters and other structures to provide entertainment for the people. And then in 19 BC, he began a 46-year project to renovate the Jewish temple. So these are things um, that I think you would look at and say these are good things. These are ways that he was caring for the people. But Herod had a weakness. He had a weakness that is not that foreign to us. And Herod's weakness was control. Herod's weakness was control. Herod needed to be in control. If you want to ask, what did Herod revolve his life around? What was the center place 
that caused Herod to invest his time and his money and his energy. It would be around control. Herod needed to be in control. When his control or his authority was challenged, he reacted violently and swiftly. During his reign, Herod determined that the high priest in Israel had become um, a political threat. And so Herod had him drowned. The high priest was Herod's wife's brother. But he was a threat. And so he was drowned. Then Herod orchestrated a huge, magnificent funeral. And at the funeral, he was there weeping. We see some of the hypocrisy in verse 8. Go search diligently for the child. And when you found him, come tell me so that I may come and worship him too. Later, Herod had his own wife killed and her mother, and he executed three of his own sons. Herod knew that on the day that he died, that no one was going to mourn his death. And so Herod had the, um, the, most, I guess, yeah, the most popular, the most well-respected folks in the Jewish community um, imprisoned. But right before he died, he, he got terribly ill, and he issued this decree to arrest these folks, and he established it so that at the moment that he died, those folks would be executed so that there would be mourning in Jerusalem. This is Herod. And so in our passage, we see that his, his issues, his issues with control, his violent reactions take on an even greater and more cruel um, shape. In verse 16, Herod gets furious with the wise men that they tricked him. And he asks him, because he asked him to come back. They didn't come back. Herod knew that somehow his intentions had been exposed to the wise men. And so he gave them full exposure. He exposed his intentions to everyone. He declared war on the new king and on all of his people. So Herod shows that he was not ruling because he cared about people. He was ruling because he cared about himself. And he didn't care who got in the way. He issued an edict, and every child under two years old, every male child under two years old, was killed in Bethlehem and in the region surrounding. Scholars say that the population of that region was probably about a thousand people. And so the number of children was somewhere between probably 20, or the number of male children, they say, was probably about 20 to 30. 20 to 30 children who were executed because Herod didn't want anyone else in control of his life. Now, his actions, by acting this way, it's really interesting, because as Matthew's telling the story, he wants us to see that there are themes in his story, and characters in the story take on particular themes. And in this action, what Herod does... Herod identifies himself with another tyrant from the Old Testament, and that's the Pharaoh from Egypt. The Pharaoh from Egypt 
Listen to Exodus chapter 1. These are verses from verse 9 to 22. It says this, And Pharaoh said to his people, this is way back in the beginning of the Bible, Exodus chapter 1. He says, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So again, you've got a Pharaoh who's concerned about control. He's concerned about himself. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, you shall let him live. Let her live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so you see here that Herod, Maybe unbeknownst to himself, but not unbeknownst to God, and not unbeknownst to Matthew, Herod is acting just like Pharaoh right before the Exodus, murdering the male children of Israel. And what this does for Matthew is this equates Herod with the Pharaoh, but it also begins a theme that if you continue to read on in Matthew's gospel, if you continue to read on, this theme develops that the religious and the political leaders of Israel at the time when the king comes, they are opposed to him. They are in stark opposition to God and his king. The leadership in Israel, political and religious, are just like Pharaoh. And the people need a new exodus. The people need a new exodus. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. But let's just think a little bit here and try to understand how Pharaoh can help us. There are times when we can't see the sins in our own heart. There's times we can't see the weaknesses that we have in us. Um, But it's really easy to see the sins in someone else, right? It's really easy to see how awful other people are. And so it's easy to paint Herod, you know, truly the way he's painted here in the Bible. But let's think about this. What drove Herod, what drove Herod to be opposed to Jesus was that Herod was unwilling to give up control. When God sent his king, that king was good news to so many, except for those who don't want a king ruling over them. And Herod realized this, and he was unwilling to give up control. And that's what launched his opposition, because he was unwilling to give up control. Matthew wants us to understand this, because it's part of the story, but it's also part of our story. I think we can understand some of Herod's heart. I mean, Herod's actions were extreme because Herod's power was extreme. But you want to think through this. There are people today who are just as opposed to Jesus as Herod was, most of which just don't have as much power. Sometimes it's true that there are times where people don't like Jesus because of his followers. Okay, so sometimes people don't like Jesus and it's, it's our fault because we are acting like foolish. We're acting foolish um, because we're not representing or following Jesus ourselves. 
when we are hypocrites as Christians, um, we paint Jesus in a really bad light. When we act in ways that don't reflect who Jesus really is, I think in a sense people are almost justified in their rejecting the Savior that we say that we believe. Um, I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, who coined the phrase that's been used so often that, you know, I, I can't hear what you're saying because your actions speak way too loudly. Um, and so there are times when the church owns the responsibility for why people don't like Jesus. But that's not true in every case. And Herod shows us, I think, he says something that is true in our day and age as well, that there are some people who are opposed to Jesus because they don't want Jesus reigning over them. They don't want Jesus as their king. It's hard to give up control. I mean, I remember in my own life, in my own life, this is what the issue was for me. Um, I was told about Jesus. Someone told me that um, to be a Christian, you need to ask Jesus into your heart um, and that he'll forgive you and he'll bless you. And I remember doing that. And then I remember having a conversation later with somebody, just a, I think it was just a few weeks later. And um, this person asked me, it was, the, it was the pastor, it was one of the pastors of the church I was going to. And um, the, the, this pastor asked, so have you given your life to Jesus? And I said, well, um, I, I've asked Jesus into my heart. That's what I was told that I'm supposed to do in order to begin a relationship with Jesus. And he said, well, no, 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 have you given your life to Jesus? Have you given control of your life to him? And I said, well, well hold on a second. Nobody told me about that. <laughs> like, I didn't know that was part of the deal. In, in my mind, here I was driving a car, and I was driving it, you know, off the edge of a cliff. You know, and so I invited Jesus to come into my life to sit next to me so he can tell me where to go. And, uh, and he said, well, actually, the image of living as a Christian is getting up out of the driver's seat and sitting in the passenger seat and letting Jesus drive the car. And I said, well, that sounds like a lot harder than what I did. And he said, yeah. And I said, I know I haven't done that yet. And at that moment, he said, you know what? Let me tell you something. He said, let me tell you about what the Bible calls abundant life. He says, Jesus promises to anyone who is willing to follow him, he promises an abundant life, a life that is so much greater, so much better than any life you could possibly live on your own. And he said, that's why I chose to follow Jesus. Because I thought, you know what? If Jesus is God and he is all-powerful, then surely he can make something more out of my life than I can do on my own. And at that point I said, well, all right, thank you for telling me this. I'm pretty confused. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. Um, and we, we, we stopped. We, um, we ended our conversation and I went on. I later just kept thinking about that. Abundant life, abundant life. I thought about what my life had become with me at the controls. And I thought, I think he's right. I think he's right. I think I ought to give up control of my life and let Jesus be my king. Because clearly he can do a better job than I'm doing. And so I gave my life to Jesus. 
That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you are giving up control. It means that you're saying, Jesus, you are the authority in my life. Whatever you say, I am willing to follow. That's a really difficult thing to do. And in some ways, this is either the most wonderful truth about Jesus or it's the most frustrating and um, antagonizing truth about Jesus. And it all comes down to whether or not you are willing to give Jesus control. Because if you're not, then you're stuck. Because Jesus is God come to earth. The king has been born. And the king will reign. The king is reigning. And if you're not willing to let him reign in your life, if you're not willing to bow to him and to worship him, then you are in opposition to his rule. And so this is a call, if you're here, for those of you who are here and you're not Christians, this is a call to you to come and to worship the king. It's a call to live for the king. We're going to talk about why you might want to do that here in a second. But it's also a call to those of us who are Christians, who are part of God's family, um, who say that I have made Jesus my king. You want to ask yourself, is there an area of your life where Jesus is not reigning? Because in that, there's a parallel between Christians and non. We all struggle with having authority over us. Even Christians struggle with this, right? There are times when Jesus tells us to do things and we don't want to. Right? We don't like what he has to say sometimes. Even when we know it's right, it's still hard. Because we want our own ways. Um, Sometimes it's because we're lazy. Sometimes it's because we want to hold on because we're unforgiving. But Jesus comes and says, will you worship? The answer, the answer to being able to let Jesus have control, especially in the area of kingship and authority, the answer is to understand the difference between a tyrant and a steward. A tyrant and a steward. I think those both give good pictures for us. Herod clearly is a tyrant. You know, if you are in authority, and this is true for kings, but it's true in all areas of life where you have authority, you can use your authority to serve yourself, in which case you are a tyrant. And how much power you have simply indicates the size of the letter T. Okay? If you have a little bit of authority, but you use all your authority to serve yourself, you're a little tyrant. Um, if you're a king and you have almost unchecked power and you use that power to serve yourself, you can become a really big tyrant. Or you can be a steward. You can be a steward. And this is what God's design is for every king who's ever lived. Every king who's ever lived is designed by God to be a steward, a steward of his authority. Every boss is designed by God to be a steward 
of his authority. Every parent is designed by God to be a steward of his authority. In every friendship or relationship where you have influence, God has designed you. He has made you so that you would use your authority, your influence as a steward, not as a tyrant. And what that means is to be a steward means that you use your authority to serve others. Okay? A steward watches over the throne until the king returns. That's what a steward does. A steward watches over the throne until the king returns. A steward exercises a measure of authority, but only in the way that the king should exercise it, only in the way the king would exercise it. But that's what a steward is. And all stewards... All stewards understand that they are not the king. If you can make that transition, I mean, I want you to think through, like right now, think about the influence that you have in your life. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you are a boss, if you're an officer, if you're a leader of anyone else, you want to think about the friends that you have. Maybe write, write one or two of them down. Just ask yourself, am I a steward or am I acting more like a tyrant? To be a tyrant is in the heart of all of us. It's in each of us. God's design is to set us free because here's what happens. The moment that you become a tyrant, you make life about yourself. And if life is about yourself, then you need to act in ways that will protect yourself and your interests and your desires and your agendas. And at the point where your life becomes more important, where your agenda, where you make the world revolve around you at that point, you are then, I mean, that's, that is the temptation to then abuse other people in small ways or in big ways, right? But it's all abuse. It's all abuse. So if you have been a tyrant, what the king says when the king comes, and we're going to see what he says in January when Jesus finally comes, and begins to speak. We're going to see his message. But one of the beginnings of his message is, repent. Repent. Which means, turn from your tyranny. Turn from the ways that you use your authority to serve yourself. And follow me. And follow me. Because when you do that, when you turn and begin to follow Jesus and let him be your king. You begin to live in ways that show that Jesus deserves all the authority, that Jesus is the model for all authority in life. And so if you're struggling with this, if you struggle with how you use authority, how you use influence with the people in your lives, the good news is this is why Jesus came. 
Jesus came for the tyrants of the world, capital giant T's and also small T's. Jesus came for everyone. He came for everyone, including you. And if you're willing to follow him, then you will experience his forgiveness and his power in your life. And so opposition is real. That's our first point. Our second point is our last point is that God's protection is real. God's protection is real. And this is helpful. We see this in our text. God knows about this opposition even before it comes. Right? Verse 13. Now when they... The wise men had departed. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there till I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. So we see that God speaks. God knows about opposition, and he actually speaks to us, prepares us for it, and gives us instruction in the midst of it. And Jesus actually does this for us. In John 15, verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but you are not of the world because I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And so God understands that opposition is real and he prepares us for it. Then Jesus said in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Jesus prepares us and he gives us assurance. He says, take heart. The opposition that you face, I have overcome it. You can have peace even in the midst of your opposition. How does he do that? Well, Jesus says in John 15, 26, he says, I will send to you the helper from the Father who is the spirit of truth. So Jesus has overcome the world in his death and his resurrection. And then he sends us his Holy Spirit. He promises and then gives us his Holy Spirit who comforts us when we are suffering opposition and who gives us boldness. In 1 Timothy 1.7, it says that the spirit that we've been given is not a spirit of timidity, but of love and power and discipline. So if you are trusting in Jesus, Jesus has poured out his own Holy Spirit to fill your heart, to fill you up so that you have his power and his boldness in the face of opposition. And what does this mean? It means if God is for us, who could be against us? There is nothing that can stand against you, that will last. 
And Jesus proves this to us because Jesus, he doesn't just give us his spirit, but Jesus actually enters into our suffering. God hasn't just come to be with us, but God came to be with us so that he could enter into the worst that we will experience. Okay? And we see this in the series of places where Matthew is telling us that Jesus did this so that it would be fulfilled. Jesus did this so that it would be fulfilled. Jesus did this so it would be fulfilled. Okay? And so we see that Jesus actually enters into our life um, through these things. There are three passages in, uh, in these verses where Jesus fulfills something from the Old Testament. The first one's there in verse 15. It says that uh, the Joseph, Mary, and Jesus remained there in Egypt until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what was spoken, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is a quote from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Okay, that's where it comes from in the Old Testament. And in that place, if you read sort of what comes before and what comes after, God is rehearsing what he did for his people in the Exodus, right? In the book of Exodus, God calls Israel his son. He tells Pharaoh, let my son go or I will kill your son. And so he calls Israel his son. And then Hosea, um, God is... um, God is rehearsing, he's reminding the people that he called them forth out of the bondage of sin, out of the darkness of slavery and sin um, to experience freedom. And what Matthew is saying here is that in Jesus, Jesus fleeing from opposition to Egypt where he's safe and then being called back out of Egypt, Jesus is entering into the exodus of Israel. He is entering into um, Israel's experience of going into Egypt and coming back out. The second verse is in verse 18. Um, this is after the, uh, after the children were, were, were slaughtered by Herod. Uh, verse 17 says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This comes from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And when Jeremiah says that, what he's describing was when Israel was exiled and deported to Babylon in the Old Testament, um, when they were deported in the deportation to Babylon, um, there was a place that was just north of Jerusalem where the enemy king came, he captured their folks, and to lead them back to slavery, he led them through the town of Rama. And so Rama was this place where the the mothers of Israel mourned and wept because their because most of their sons had been slaughtered in the war and then the chief sons of Israel were deported first. And so they watched their best and brightest have to leave to go and serve in exile in Egypt. Now, what's interesting about this And so what's interesting about this is that Matthew is saying that in Jesus' experience here with what happened to the children of Israel and Jesus, the best and the brightest, having to go into um, exile, that Jesus is entering into the experience of Israel's exile. 
Okay, so we have exodus and then we have exile. Well, then the third passage um, where Matthew says something was, was fulfilled is the last verse. In verse 23, it says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this one's kind of challenging, because with a lot of these verses, you could probably go on Google and search and find, oh, here's the Bible passage. This comes out of in the Old Testament. Well, this last one is not a quote from the Old Testament. There is no verse in the Old Testament that says that the Messiah was going to be a Nazarene. Okay? There's just, there aren't any verses there. You can try to find them. They aren't there. Um, and so what does this mean then? Well, we get a little bit of a clue that Matthew is doing something more than just quoting a verse by what he says. He says, so that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled. And so what we have here is Matthew is saying that when Jesus did this, when he went and lived in Nazareth, that Jesus was doing something that was fulfilling multiple things that were said by the prophets. So that's kind of helpful. But now we're looking for lots of verses instead of just one, which is sometimes even more confusing. Right? How do we find this out? Right? If you're studying the Bible and you come across this, what do you do? Well, with this one, it helps to know a little bit of Hebrew. Okay, so the word Nazareth, the word Nazarene, actually, um, it's related to the Hebrew word Nezer. Okay, Nezer. And the word Nezer in Hebrew means branch. Okay, it means branch. And so what Matthew's saying here is that Jesus moved to Nazareth so that he could be called a Nazarene, which is a play on words saying Jesus is going up there so that he can be a branch, a branch. Now, you might need to know some of the Old Testament for that to begin to make sense, why Matthew would say that. In the book of Isaiah especially, the kingship of Israel, the line of kings, is compared to a tree. And when Israel was judged for their, because they left God, when they were judged for their sins, it says in Isaiah that the tree has been cut down. It's been cut down, meaning Israel no longer has a king. And so it pictures the line of kings as a stump. It's a stump in the ground. And then in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of, of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And so what we see here is this branch that will come. The image here is if we have a tree stump and maybe you've seen this, right? Little twigs sometimes grow up along from, from the side of it. New growth happens. Well, there's this little tiny shoot that comes up and it grows and it grows and it becomes a branch, and it begins to bear fruit. And what we see here is the promise of restoration. That in the Old Testament, there are, there are promises, and it's not just Isaiah, but it's also in Jeremiah, it's in Zechariah. There are these promises that God is going to send a king, and that king is going to be from the stump 
of Jesse from that same tree. This is why the genealogy is so important because we see that Jesus is in the line of David. He is the shoot of Jesse. And so he is the Nezer. He is the branch. He is the promised king that has come to bring restoration. Restoration to God's people. And so what we have here, and this is, it's kind of amazing when you look at these, at these things and you understand the images and the quotes and, and how this fits together. Because what Matthew is saying in 11 verses, he's, this is another way of Matthew saying that Jesus is God with us. Because Jesus came and he is reliving the experience of Israel. Jesus is the new Israel. It's like the country of Israel, the people of God are being reformed and refashioned around him. He enters in. He enters into Israel's exodus. He enters in to Israel's exile. And then he comes to embody Israel's restoration. And so if you were a Jew reading this, you would think, wow. Wow, Jesus, our king is identifying with me and my family. Friends, the rest of the Bible goes on. The rest of the story of Jesus goes on to say, not just that Jesus has relived the experience of Israel, but that Jesus came and has relived the experience of all of us, of you. There's a place in Hebrews where it says, Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be you because he was tempted in every way that you are tempted but he never sinned but he never sinned so he understands exactly what it's like to be tempted the way you are but he didn't sin so that he could save you he never sinned so that he could bring you restoration the restoration that he brings with his kingdom, and you find out more about that as the story goes, that that restoration he brings into your life when you trust him. When you trust him, he brings you in an exodus, in a new exodus, out of bondage to sin. When you feel exiled and far from God, when you feel far and disconnected from his purposes in your life, when you feel aimless and purposeless, God comes near and sets you free and he brings about restoration in your life. Internal healing, a clear conscience, forgiveness and power so that you can both own the things that you've done. You can own and admit and confess the sins you've committed and then get the power that you need to grow. Get the strength that you need to grow. God will put everything that is in Jesus into you so that you can have his love and his peace, his kindness, his gentleness, his faithfulness, his courage, and his strength. This is it. This is God. His protection in your life is real because he wants you to know that the way God's protection comes is God comes and he says, look, you face opposition. I understand. I understand. I understand opposition. 
I was born with a price on my head. For my entire life, I faced opposition. Sometimes it was my own family. Sometimes it was my friends. Sometimes it was the people who were in authority over me. And you need to know, you need to know that God protected me in my life all the way through until my protection meant that you might be forsaken. God protected Jesus. You see him, he talks about his hour. They couldn't get to him until his hour had come. His hour hadn't come, his hour hadn't come. Well, there's a point in time when God's call for Jesus meant that he was going to withdraw his protection. Because Jesus came to be the Savior. Jesus came to be your Savior. And so, in the culmination of Jesus' life on earth, God did remove his protection from him. God allowed him to be handed over to the authorities. God allowed him to be crucified, to be tortured and mocked and scourged and then crucified until he died. And God let go of the protection on Jesus so that he could look you dead in the eye and say, I will never, ever, ever let you out of my hand. That you are in the palm of my hand and no one can ever snatch you out. The only thing that separates us from God is sin. And God has taken our sin and placed it on Jesus. Jesus has taken the punishment that our sins deserve so that God can hold on to us for dear life. So God can hold on to us and never, ever let us go. That's why you want to bow the knee to Jesus. That's why you want to let him have control. You want to let him be the king. You want to become a steward and give up any sort of tyranny that's in your life because when you're in his hand, you have his protection and he will never let you go. And if you're in that hand, you're safe. In the face of opposition, you can speak up. When you are nervous about how what you say is going to be received, you can tell people what you believe about Jesus because you are always in the palm of his hand. Jesus says, I was forsaken so that you would never be forsaken. Trust him. Trust him. And let his protection give you a boldness that enables you to be honest about what you believe. Let it give you the boldness to be able to stand up and be proud, not of yourselves, be proud of Jesus. Be proud that you have a Savior who has come to earth to protect you. A Savior who lives to watch out and to, and, and to guard and protect you. That you are in his hand. That is the answer to so many problems that people face. 
They need to know that they are in good hands. So I'd encourage you to rest in his protection. Rest in his protection and let that protection give you boldness in the face of opposition. Let's pray. Lord, you have protected us. You've protected us in so many ways, Lord. All of us that are sitting here have experienced your protection. Lord, and I pray that you would make us bold. I pray that you would strengthen us so that we would trust in your protection and we would step out. Help us, Lord, especially as we get ready to celebrate your birth. Help us, remind us of what it's like to live in the joy of this protection so that we can then share it with others. And Lord, for those who are here and haven't yet given their, the control of their lives to you, I pray that you would show them, or that you'd show them how you can protect and show them glimpses of the abundant life that you promise, a life of knowing you. Help them to see that you are the great reward and the prize that makes life abundant. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.